studied during the, the week to bring us. And we pray, Lord God, that we will hear your word through what he says and that we will be those who receive the word and obey it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Fab. Morning, everyone. Great to see you all. Uh, do turn in your Bibles to John 13. That's where uh, the passage we'll be looking at in part today. I'm just going to move this down. Thanks, Joe. Um, if you during the week we sent out a, an e-news update, um, just a bit of a video update, updating on a few things that we uh, communicated some of on a Sunday morning. But if you weren't there that Sunday, you'd have missed it. So sent out on a video so everyone heard it. We have an update on some changes we're making to breaking of bread on Sunday mornings for next week. So do have a listen to that. And a really important uh, letter sharing some family news. So if you haven't received that, just let us know. We'll make sure that we get one to you. Um, if you haven't got a letter, yeah, it's important to read it. So uh, do ask, and we'll give you a hard copy. And make sure that you, you have one. Um, if you're new here this morning, my name is James. I'm one of the leaders here at New Life. Um, it's uh, good to have you with us. We're on a series looking at Christ's church, Christ's values. Um, and so um, we've been having a look at what are some of our key values. We've been looking at nine key values for us as a church. We looked at three doctrinal values um, to do with being word-based, grace-filled, and spirit-empowered. We've looked at the importance of having elders in each local church and also the importance of inviting translocal ministries, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, into do us good as a church. And this morning we're having a look at um, servant-hearted leadership, servant-hearted leadership. I wonder what your experience of leadership's been like, because we all experience it at some point in our lives, don't we? Whether that's um, through the government, which we're experiencing quite significantly at the moment, Uh, whether it might be in your workplace, uh, might have been in your family, in church, in clubs or societies um, you're a part of, but we all experience it, and it, it shapes our understanding of leadership um, and our response to it. For some of us, um, past experiences might have left a, a bad taste, perhaps some skepticism towards uh, leadership, um, towards those in authority in whatever sphere that might be, and um, we're particularly aware in our culture of authority. We're aware of... Um, We place a high value, don't we, on personal autonomy, the right of the individual to make decisions for themselves and live freely. We're very aware of, you know, if if you've been in a school environment, um, the words, I have rights, trip off a child's tongue like like any phrase, like, yeah, that's not fair, I have rights. Those two things just seem to, like, trip out. We're very aware of our own personal autonomy. It's very important to us rightly. Uh, We can be very suspicious of the potential for authority and leadership to impede on that personal authority, uh, personal autonomy. Um, think about our history curriculum. It's full of um, wars dominated in the last century uh, by authoritarian dictators who sought to undermine a nation's autonomy or sought to undermine individuals' autonomy. Our historic heroes are people like Nelson Mandela, William Wilberforce, Martin Luther King, these are the names that everyone knows of because they fought for our individual autonomy and rights and fought for us as nations as well. Our newspapers are often full of stories about abuses of authority, 
and power are both in the home and in society. So we've heard a lot recently, haven't we, of Trump's impeachment, the MP expenses scandal that was not that long ago. We hear of NHS mismanagement, school academy corruption, local authorities mishandling, safeguarding cases of vulnerable children, domestic violence in the home. These are things that we hear of on a regular basis. And the church isn't, uh, unfortunately, isn't um, free of that either. We hear of megachurch pastors, moral failings quite often in Christian news, if you read that kind of thing, uh, failures with their members. We often hear of the culture of domineering leadership in churches. So all these things can make an impression on us and how we perceive leadership and how we respond to it. J.R. Packer wrote this really helpfully. Authoritarianism is authority corrupted. Any form of human authority can degenerate in this way. When a regime uses power in an unprincipled way to maintain itself, In churches, when leaders claim control of their followers' consciences. In academic work, when you're required to agree with your professor. In family, when parents direct or restrict their children unreasonably. Unhappy experiences of authority are usually experiences of degenerate authority. Such experiences leave a bad taste and prompt scepticism. And uh, I've been reading recently a book by a historian, Martin Meredith. It's a 5,000-year span of African history. And what he's just described there is just in every page. Um, So perhaps we should just do away with leadership. Avoid it at all costs. (laughs) I've not painted a very good picture of it so far, have I? Doom and gloom. (laughs) But should we just do away? What hope does Christianity, what hope does Jesus offer us? What hope does Jesus bring of a better way? in terms of leadership. If we're going to spend the morning talking about leadership, it would probably be quite helpful to define it and understand it. Um, It's been raised at some of our church family meetings, so just to reiterate, what's the difference then between leadership and eldership? It's helpful to distinguish between the two. The gift of leadership is a gift that people can have. Eldership is a function in the family. It's a role that people play. So Romans 12.8 mentions leadership, proistemi in the Greek. It's a gift that's graciously given by God to serve us as a body and do us good as a family. It's sandwiched between the gifts of giving and mercy. So it's for the care of the church, to look after the church. It's closely related as well to the gift of administration. It's about steering the ship, guiding it in the right way. Um, there's no indication that the gift of leadership is limited to those who are called to serve as elders, Rather, the gift of leadership is spread abroad across the church, men and women, um, children, adults, the old, the young, whatever it might be, uh, can be gifted with this gift of leadership. And we'd expect um, people from all aspects of church life to take up leadership responsibility, uh, not just in church life, but also to see it in public life, in the workplace, and so on. And so we'd encourage members to g- uh, grow in this gift and practice their gift in contexts which enable us in our leadership giftings to flourish and serve the body well. On the other hand, elders are called, recognized, and appointed to function as shepherds in the church. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. And when Paul lists uh, the qualifications for an elder in Timothy, um, he mentions that uh, an elder should be able to manage or should lead, again in the Greek, his household well. This is because obviously if he can't lead his household well, 
it's going to be difficult for him to lead the church family well. And so we'd expect people who are elders to have some measure of leadership gifting. But they wouldn't necessarily be the most gifted leaders in the church, if that makes sense. You can have people who have greater measures of gifting in church life and then excel in their roles in church life, but you'd expect elders, because they're leading the church, to have some measure of gifting. Um, Because it's an aspect of caring for the flock and providing direction to the church. So if, uh, if we're talking about leadership this morning, what's the defining characteristic of leadership? Uh, what is it all about? What's at the very heart of it? Uh, and we find this in Scripture, that Christ, this is our value. Christian leadership, in its essence, is a call to be an example, not an exception. Following the example of Jesus, Christian leaders are meant to serve others, not be served. Christian leadership should be godly, transparent, and accessible. Christian leadership exists to multiply ministry, not monopolize it. Christian leadership ought to seek partnership and collaboration with other gospel-shaped leaders, rather than to demonstrate isolation and individualism. The defining characteristic of church leadership and Christian leadership is not big vision, it's not competent Bible teaching, it's not pastoral wisdom or ministry success or winsome personality. Its defining characteristic is servant-hearted leadership. Um, And so whilst we talk about servant-hearted leadership, we're talking about broadly those who have the gift of leadership and exercise it in church life, including elders, but also ministry leaders, those who lead house groups, who lead children's work and youth work, administration, finance, community outreach, evangelism, pastoral work, um, those who lead in family life, those who lead in, work, in the workplace, those who uh, lead in marriage, those who lead their dog. Um, so there will be many of us here to whom this is relevant. Um, because servant-hearted is at the very core of being a leader, but it's actually just a core value of being a Christian. We're called to serve like Jesus served. So, should we get into the passage? It's John 13, verses 1 uh, to 17. John 13, verses 1 to 17. And now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end or to the uttermost. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments Taking a towel, he tied it round his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped round him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you'll understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. 
Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should, uh, that you also should do, just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant's not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So Jesus is, is not of this world, verse 1. His, he's not of this world of authoritarian abuses, of authority and leadership. They're foreign to his kingdom. His kingdom's ruled by love. He came to establish a people of his own in the world who were defined by humble, loving service. It says he loved them to the end or he loved them to the uttermost or he, he went to show them the full extent of his love. He came to show his disciples and us what humble leadership looks like, what it looks to truly love people when you lead them. Jesus says in the Gospels, I am gentle and humble in heart. And so we see here a demonstration of what that looks like. Verses 1 to 2 set the scene for us. The disciples have gathered together for the Passover. Um, Just before Jesus is betrayed by one of his own disciples, Judas. Um, He's conspired with the devil um, to have Jesus arrested. And then Jesus is going to be put on trial soon and crucified on a cross. And what's happening in the room is dinner's been served... But there's no slave or menial servant to do the work of washing everybody's feet in preparation for dinner. And so only the lowest of lows in society would do this. So some records tell us that Jews would consider it inappropriate for a Jewish slave or menial servant to wash other Jews' feet. That it would need to be a Gentile, somebody who wasn't a Jew doing it. It was the lowest of the lows type job to go around and wash everyone's feet and the job hadn't been done so so there's that kind of feeling you know when you're sat in a room socially and something's gone on that everybody is aware of and everybody's thinking it but nobody's said anything yet they're all sitting there in awkwards supper's been served feet haven't been washed there's an essential aspect of hospitality and hygiene at the time a bit like washing your hands for 20 seconds it was they'd travel along dusty roads in sandals, you can think hot climate, dusty paths, walking long distances, come into a room, they're reclining at a table, up close to one another, with their feet behind them. Um, so it was just a kind of normal practice to wash one another's feet ready for dinner. Uh, Jesus, it says, knows that the Father has given him all things. It means Jesus has ultimate power and authority. He's the greatest leader in the truest sense of the word. He has ultimate power and authority. And Jesus is on a mission, isn't he, to establish his kingdom. That's what ultimately he's come to do, establish his kingdom in the world. 
to oppose the devil. And you'd expect, given Jesus has got all authority and power, that then he might just engage in some sort of flashy confrontation with the devil, knowing he's going to win, because all authority and power is in his hands. But that's not what we get with Jesus. You'd expect a kind of expect a mighty victory, as some of those in his amongst his disciples who were zealots, they were expecting Jesus to raise up an army and overthrow the Roman government, and were really disappointed when he didn't. They're expecting that kind of um, assertive victory, exerting um, power and authority and leadership over heaven and earth. And this is how the disciples saw leadership and greatness. They had been in conflict actually during the meal. There's a passage in Luke 22 uh, where they're having a dispute amongst themselves during the supper. And they're arguing competitively about who amongst them is the greatest. Which one of us is the best? Which one of us is the one who's going to have the greatest power and authority in Jesus' kingdom? It's been an ongoing argument. Because previously, you might remember James and John, who were called the Sons of Thunder kind of gives you an impression of their personality, <laughs> had been asking Jesus, you know, Jesus, when we get into heaven, you know, can one of us sit on your left, one of us sit on your right, with the sons of thunder, with the mighty men of this group, can we have those seats? Um, this has been an ongoing debate and argument. And when, when they said that, the others then started squabbling, you know, oh, how dare you ask Jesus for the seats of power, you know, power and authority in his kingdom? What about us? Aren't I the greatest? <laughs> how dare you think of yourself any better than me. And so Jesus responds to their quarrels in Luke 22. The king of, kings of this world lord it over people, but not in my kingdom. Let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. It's in Luke 22, 25 to 26. And then in Mark 9, 35 to James and John, he says, um, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And we see this in Paul's example in the New Testament. He says to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 11.7, he speaks of humbling himself so that the Corinthians might be exalted, bringing himself low so that they might be lifted up. That's what true greatness looks like. You see, the disciples had engaged in this competitiveness and comparison Their key concern in leadership was how they compared with others. I think I'm better than them, so therefore I should take this position. And it's like a cancer, and Jesus recognized it as being so. And as being completely hostile to the seven-hearted life and leadership, an obstacle as well to people's needs being met. So a helpful question to ask ourselves is, in life and in church especially, do we tend to compare ourselves to one another? To kind of think, oh, that person prays like this and compare it to how you pray. Do you think about how somebody witnesses and shares the gospel and can then compare it to how you do? Are you During worship, are your eyes really on how other people are responding in worship? Comparing physically what they're doing to what you're doing? Whether you're doing that, when we do make comparisons with others, whether we're doing it favorably or not, because you can make comparison and think, oh, I'm actually doing pretty good here. (laughs) 
Thank God they're around to exalt me. <laughs> or you can do it the other way around. And it can be, oh, look at them. I could never be like that. And either way, we're being prideful in our comparison. Because either you're putting yourself on a pedestal, or you're trying to attain it and realizing you haven't sat on the pedestal, but hoping that you will one day. Either way, uh, Charles Colson says this, it's difficult to stand on a pedestal and wash the feet of those below you. It's difficult to stand on a pedestal and wash the feet of those below you. So when we do have those thoughts of comparison, which can lead to this competitiveness that the disciples had, uh, when it enters our thoughts, it will affect our relationships with the people around us because it, it puts something between us. It either puts them on a pedestal or it puts you on one. And either way, the ground's no longer level. It puts something between you, affects our relationships with one another. It'll affect our prayer life as well. When we pray together, oh, I, couldn't pr- I couldn't pray aloud. Oh, I can't pray like that. I can't pray like so-and-so. I'm not eloquent like that. Servant leadership, servant-hearted leadership, involves humbly serving people with who you are and what you have. Not hoping to be something else and hoping to have something else so that you can. It's recognizing who you are and what you have and humbly serving others with it. Focused on what God has uniquely given you and I. He hasn't gifted us in the same way. He's not created us in the same way. He's not called us to the same things. We've got each a unique thing that God has given to us. And so, recognizing who we are and what we have, we humbly serve. Without the obstacles of comparison and competition that we might have. So, in church life, servant leaders will be transparent in their repentance. They'll be transparent in their life. They won't be kind of like... You you shouldn't have the feeling that those who are leading you in church life are far off. They're a bit distant. Their life is mystical to you. You don't really understand what it's like or what their family life is like or what their marriage is like or how they relate to others. You should see their life, be in and out of one another's homes, knowing each other intimately. They should be transparent in their repentance. You might not know all the details of their repentance, but they will um, demonstrate a vulnerability and a recognition that they haven't got it all, they haven't arrived, and just like all of us, they need to repent. They're not the finished article. They don't put on a mask of superiority or faultlessness. But rather, leaders should be comfortable in their own skin with who they are. Comfortable in their calling, comfortable in their gifting. They'll be aware of their strengths and weaknesses, and they'll be seeking to multiply ministry to see more people leading and flourishing in their gifts rather than monopolizing it. So, uh, 1 Corinthians 3, Paul demonstrates this, doesn't he? We looked at this not long ago, that he reminds them that he and Apollos and the other uh, apostles were servants of the church. They didn't lord it over them. Paul came and planted, and Apollos watered. They each had a different role. 
And they weren't, you know, Paul wasn't kind of hyping himself up, I've got this role in the Corinthian church, and let's not have anybody else get involved. It's, I did this role, others do that role. And we work together in that, seeing others flourish as well. Leaders recognize that they aren't the solution to every problem, but invite and draw out the gifts of others so that we work together well as a body. And the next thing, nevertheless, in, it's culturally understandable, isn't it, that the disciples are reluctant to be the one to wash each other's feet. It was socially fitting. What they did wasn't... No person at that time would have read that passage and go, oh, I can't believe what the disciples are doing. None of them have got up and washed their feet. They let Jesus do it. They're all reading it going, oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> of course. It's totally appropriate. Socially constructed and appropriate for the time. So imagine the scene. They're all looking around. They're wondering who's going to do it. They're comparing themselves with one another because they've just had this argument about who's the greatest. And then uh, the previous disagreements are lingering in the air. They're wondering who's the least, looking around the room. I wonder if there must be at least one person in this room who's probably lower than I am and can get on with it. It can't be me. And then the chit-chat hushes. And there's stunned silence in the room as Jesus stands up. And they get that, oh, can't be doing that, can he? And then he takes off his outer garments, takes on the dress of a slave, of a menial servant, thinking, is he about to do what I think he's about to do? Puts a towel around his waist, and then performs the role of a slave, of a menial servant, pours water into a basin, washes their feet. One by one, moving around the room, in awkward silence, until compulsive Peter can't take it anymore. <laughs> has to break the silence. Lord, do you wash my feet? In utter shock and disbelief, expressing what all the others are thinking. One of the ways that pride manifests itself in our hearts is in refusing to take the lower role. Refusing, that's below me. I I don't have to do that. Jesus' actions in this situation would have been like a dagger to the heart of the disciples in the room. A dagger to their prideful hearts and their refusal to lower themselves. And Jesus makes it clear, if it's good enough for him, it's good enough for them. Jesus, if it's good enough for you, it's good enough for me. So we have to follow his example. I wonder how this might manifest in our own hearts and in our own lives. Is there a way in which we refuse to serve in our family or the workplace or in home or here in church life? Is there something we we wouldn't do? And often that can be something that sounds kind of humble, can't it? I could never do that. It wouldn't be right for me to do that. It can often be entirely socially appropriate. Nobody around the room is thinking, well, you should do that. Because it's 
socially appropriate to not do it, to not, because it would be lowering yourself. The point is that if you did it, it would be shocking, and everybody would go, oh, that's a bit uncomfortable, slightly awkward. Um, Often there's no pressure, is there? Nobody expects it of us. But it would meet a need. It would serve others. And that's the nature of Jesus' life. Mark 10, 45, he came to serve, not be served, but to give his life. And the disciples at that time in that room needed this demonstration of servant-hearted leadership. And so do we, don't we? We need examples and role models in church life who are constantly laying down their lives for others, not there to be served, but to serve others, so that we know what it looks like. We have examples to copy. This is what Paul did for the early church. He had incredible gifting, great intellectual powers, great authority, and yet he says, we don't lord it over your faith. But we work with you for your joy. We help you to stand firm in the faith. And so servant-hearted leadership should be accessible. The folks who are leading us in various ways, we should know their lives. We should know the real you, as it were. Not kind of wondering what you're really like. Know what you're like at home. Not know what you're like with your wife or with your children or with your husband or... um, this, this will also affect our witness to the world. Because it spe- speaks really loudly, doesn't it, when our well-known words to the world are backed up by our actions. That when we demonstrate humble love for one another, people see the love of Christ amongst us as a people. And so if we have these examples of servant leadership going on all the time, of serving one another, laying our lives down for each other, that's what people see. And Jesus said, by this... All people will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. That's how the world will know Jesus, is if they see his love amongst us as people. And so, in church life, we'll constantly be, uh, dare I say it, competing with one another (laughs) to lower ourselves. It does say in the Bible, outdo one another in love, doesn't it? Outdo one another. Well, he did such and such. Well, I think I I can better that. (laughs) I can do this. Not quite in that sense, but you know know what I mean. There's a sense of eagerness to lower ourselves and serve one another in church life, sacrificing our preference, coming together to meet the needs of others right there in the moment, being perceptive of one another's needs and caring enough to meet them. Uh, Jesus uh, wasn't a slave to his social status as a rabbi, in, in the culture at that time, being a rabbi was a big deal. It was the thing. You gathered a group of disciples, they followed you, you were their master, their teacher, they spent all their time with you, they learnt your ways and your teachings, you were the guy, you were the personality. But Jesus wasn't a slave to his pride of having that position, he wasn't a slave to his privilege of playing that role amongst the disciples. He wasn't a slave to his position as their Lord, teacher, and master, and their leader. He was truly free to humble himself, to lay aside those entitlements, to empty himself for the purpose of meeting others' needs, motivated by a heart of love towards them. So true freedom is exercised not for self, but for service. That's why we're free. That's why Jesus has set us free. It's not for ourselves. It's not for our own benefit. It's not for our own rights. It's for others. 
True freedom is exercised not for self, but for service. And this is what Jesus uses his freedom for, not for his own benefit, but to love others. Don Carson says, A revered and exalted Messiah assumes the role of the despised servant for the good of others. See, if you're a slave to something else, you can't be a slave to others. It'll get in the way, because frankly, it'll be more important. Jesus had nothing that was more important to him than meeting the needs of his disciples and humbly loving and serving them. And therefore, he was able to do anything, even die on a cross in their place for their sins. Because nothing got in the way. So is there something that gets in the way of us serving one another? Is there something in church life that you wouldn't do? And if you wouldn't do it, why wouldn't you do it? if it met others' needs, regardless of the reason behind it, is there, some, is there some sort of obstacle in the way of allowing you to serve others and be free to do that? Uh, verse 8. Jesus' response to Peter is that if he doesn't allow Jesus to wash him, then he has no share with him. Because Jesus' washing of the disciples' feet was his greatest act, uh, points rather, to his greatest act of loving, humble service, which is his death on the cross, which is soon to come. If we accept Jesus laying down his life for us, serving us on the cross, washing away our sin, then we have a share in his kingdom, both now and for eternity. We have a share in his kingdom purposes and what he's doing in the earth now. And we have eternal purposes prepared for us in heaven, in his kingdom if you, verse 10, if you're aware of your sin like Peter was, if you're aware of not being clean, if you're aware of the dirt in your life as it were, and that you need Jesus on the cross to put your dirt and sin in life to death so that he can wash you clean forever, then Jesus declares what he does to Peter here. You are clean. That's his declaration over us as followers of Jesus. You are clean. You're forgiven. You're free. You're righteous. Everything that is Christ's is yours. I was reading this morning that he, he who had no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus became sin, dirty on our behalf, despised on the cross so that we would be exalted and lifted up and honoured and declared you are clean even though we're not. Even though we're sinful, we've been forgiven. Even though we're in slavery, we've been set free. Even though we're dirty, full of sin, he's made us clean. Jesus' declaration over you and I, if we follow him and trust him, is you are clean. He responds to Peter, there's no need for a full-on bath, Peter. There's no more that needs doing. The work on the cross will do it all. This humble service of washing your feet is just pointing to this greatest service of all, dying for you on the cross in your place. There's nothing more that needs doing. The cross has done it all. It is finished. And Peter, not knowing that the cross is coming, knowing the little that he does and what he understands, responds in unrestrained exuberance in a very compulsive Peter-like manner. Lord, not over my feet, but also this and that, and you know, bath me! <laughs> Knowing very little. 
And that's to be our response too, isn't it? With whatever you understand of Jesus and the gospel, and maybe you've been hearing bits and bobs and talking things through with friends, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. If you believe that Jesus has made you clean, you're aware of your own dirt, then you can respond in that way with unrestrained exuberance, knowing he's declared you're clean. If you want to do that, I would encourage you, speak to him. Say, Lord, I'm, I'm full of dirt. I'm aware of the dirt in my life. Thank you that you died on the cross, put my dirt to death, so that I could be made clean and declared clean by you. And the final thing is that Jesus even washes Judas's feet. This has just got to be the most baffling thing about this passage, hasn't it? He's literally about to betray him. Jesus has spent three years of his life serving this man relentlessly, humbly, laying down his life for him. He's given responsibility. He's raised him up. He's entrusted him with the finances that the disciples used for themselves. He's given his life wholly and completely to this man, done nothing but loved him for three years, called him out of the situation he was in, and allowed him to follow him, taught him everything, completely given his life to him. And in that room, Judas's heart is, I'm going to betray this man, so he is arrested for some money. Because greed had gripped his heart. Imagine the disciples' realisation later on, looking back on this scene, realising Judas is the one who betrayed Jesus. He's the one who caused him to be put to death on the cross. And then thinking, Judas was in that room. Jesus washed his feet. What an incredible thing Jesus did. See, Judas, in that moment, in that room, deserves a cross. He's, making it, he's made himself an enemy of Jesus. Jesus has done nothing but love him, and he's going to do nothing but betray him now. And in that moment, he deserves the cross. And soon he will meet death, but what he receives from Jesus in the moment is the same humble, loving service. And he washes Jesus' feet just like he does the others. And this will vastly affect the way that we relate to people, won't it? Maybe you've got people who've mistreated you, who've abused you, who've hurt you, great friends and family who you knew for years betrayed you. People who really you'd loved dearly, been very close in friendship and relationship with, just turned on you. And Jesus says, love your enemies. When people treat you in a way that you recognize they deserve the cross and everything I can throw at them, my anger, my disappointment, my hurt, my pain. You want to throw it all at them. Jesus, in that moment, knows everything that's going on with Judas and with his heart. He knows he's about to betray him, yet he washes his feet still. And that's what Jesus calls us to as his disciples, is to humbly and lovingly treat, uh, to serve those who have treated you like dirt and betrayed you. And they're really your enemy. But 
Jesus uh, summarizes this servant-hearted leadership by calling us, his disciples, to take up our cross and follow him. This message of servant-hearted leadership is totally contrary to the concept of leadership at the time. What Jesus is saying here when he says, take up your cross and follow me, to the Romans, looked like weakness. Jesus on the cross, laughable that you worship and follow a man who died on a cross. Only the worst in society, the despised of society, get a death on the cross. And to the Greeks, it looked like utter foolishness. Pathetic. It's completely contrary as well, isn't it, to our culture's vision of impressive leadership. The dominant themes in our Western culture are completely opposed to the cross-shaped life of servant-hearted service. Our culture tells us to do what feels good, and the cross says, do what is good. Jesus didn't feel like doing the cross. He said, take this cup from me, Father. If, Lord, take it away from me if you can. And yet he still went to the cross. He didn't do what felt good. He did what was good. Our culture says, take revenge. The cross says, humbly and lovingly serve your enemies. Extend forgiveness to them. As Jesus is there on the cross, he says to the, of the people who crucif- are crucifying him, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Our culture says, cover up your wrongdoing. Hide it. You don't really want people knowing that. They won't think you're very impressive. The cross says, be totally exposed. Be transparent. Confess your sin. That's how it is healed. Culture says, go with the flow. The cross says, stand your ground. In the face of mocking, of persecution, of death on a cross, stand your ground and do what's right. Culture says, it's important to be socially accepted. You want to be on the in crowd. You want to, other, other people to think well of you. The cross sometimes means that you'll be rejected and hung up on a cross, left out and excluded. The culture says, take care of number one. I, me, and myself of my island. The cross says, seek the good of others, regardless of the cost to yourself, even if it's your life. That's the definition of love in church family life. It's laying yourself down, laying your life down for others at great cost to ourselves. Following the example of our saviour, Jesus Christ, who died on a cross in our place for our sin. The band would like to come back up, we'll uh, respond. Should we stand and get ready to worship? <clears throat> of this passage. So it's Uh, Philippians 2, verses 1 to 11. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, anybody need any encouragement today? (laughs) The way the, you know, situation in the world, we could do with some encouragement, couldn't we? (laughs) Like some words of encouragement. Any comfort from love? Anybody need comforting? Any participation in the Spirit? Any affection and sympathy? Complete my joy, Paul says to the Philippians, by being of the same mind, 
having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is the way we're to think. Who, though he was in the form of God, truly great, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus, you have laid down your life for us, served us, shown what humble, loving service looks like. And we, we're humbled, Lord. And you have been exalted to the highest place. You're the truly great one. You're the one who has lowered yourself, but has been exalted for the way that you have given your life for us. And we worship you now and declare that every knee shall bow. And our knee right now bows and declares that you are Lord, you are God, and you're worthy of worship. Amen.